0: Well, this morning we are finishing up our eight-week series that we have been doing on what is a Christian. And uh, now next week we're starting a brand new series. And in your bulletins you've noticed a um, uh, pamphlet around that, Living Hope, the study of uh, 1 Peter. And we're going to do this as a church, so we're going to have a study guide in each of the bulletins Uh, for Grow Groups, for individual study, uh, and we'll all be studying together the book of 1 Peter. And uh, it's going to be an exciting study. I'm very, very thrilled uh, to be part of this and to open God's word to you uh, from 1 Peter. Living hope. But today we're going to uh, finish up our series, What is a Christian? Now, I want to say a word. Uh, Several of you have uh, said to me, um, well, It's kind of awkward. I I don't know what to say anymore. I mean, do I say I'm a Christian? Do I talk about Christians? Do I talk about Christianity? Well, first of all, um, let's don't be legalistic about anything. Right. So that's what we're kind of preaching against, you know, so. uh, No, but as long as you understand that the whole point of this series has been to help you understand what Jesus thought and said and believed and did around what he called his followers. They were disciples. And a disciple is a completely different animal than a Christian, because a Christian can be anything you want to make it. But don't be afraid to use the word Christian, but when you say it, make sure you know what it means. I'm a disciple. That means every morning I get up and I ask Jesus, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to think? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm not just a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus. So don't be afraid to use the word Christian. Use it all you want. Just make sure you understand what it means and make sure also that when you're hearing it from somebody else, that you probably don't understand what they mean. So that means a conversation around what it means to follow Christ. So uh, that's why I just want to encourage you. It's OK if you use the word Christian around me. I'm not going to be, uh, you know, I'm not going to scold you or anything like that. Uh, I slip up and use it myself. So it's OK. Now, today, a brief synopsis of the series, What is a Christian? And then I want to leave you uh, with the truth that I believe will uh, really transform the way that you see life and the way you do life. Really, your worldview. That's really what this whole series is about, is to help us transform our worldview. Uh, Now, if you're here for the first time today, and I met several new people as you were coming in, if you are not a God, Jesus, Bible person, that's OK. We welcome everyone. We're just glad that you've come here this Sunday. Uh, this is a good Sunday to be here if you've not grown up in the church or you've been away from the church. And here's why. I think today you might hear something that will cause you to take a second look. Um, maybe it will cause you to uh, give another chance to the church. Uh, throughout the series, I have apologized several times on behalf of Christendom to people who are outside the church and the way that we have talked to you and the way we have treated you. Uh, We have not uh, acted as Jesus would, and and we apologize deeply for that. And so if you're here today and you're one of those people, I hope that you will open your heart and uh, consider what it means to have a relationship with God, not religion, but a relationship with God. So welcome uh, each and every one of you, especially those who are brand new to our church. Now, we started this series recognizing that Christianity has a little bit of a branding problem. <laughs> we all say Christian, but everybody has their own definition of what a Christian is. And the reason that's the case is because the Bible doesn't define Christian, it's only used three times in the New Testament. And both all three of those times when it's used, is kind of used of people from outside the church talking about people in the church. Those Christians, those people. So we have kind of this branding problem. And a lot of people feel negatively about Christian. Negative about Christendom. If you go to a Muslim country and you talk about the West or about Christianity... They just get all, uh, you know, get all angry and upset because they have this idea. They can define it any way they want to. Right. They have this idea that Christianity is something that's opposed to them, opposed to their religion, opposed to their lifestyle and all of those kind of things. So for some of you, I think for all of us at some level, um, we've had this kind of definition of what it means to be a Christian. And here's what I think the world thinks about us. Okay, this is my definition of what the world thinks about us. Christians are homophobic, judgmental moralists who think they're the only ones going to heaven and who secretly relish the fact that everyone else is going to hell. Okay, now, if that's kind of humorous to you, I'm glad because uh, uh, for us inside the church, well, that's not what we intend. That's not what we want to project. But you know what? That's what the world hears. That's what the world sees. Christians are homophobic, judgmental moralists who think they are the only ones going to heaven. And they secretly relish the fact that everyone else is going to hell. That's what we looked at in week one of our uh, message series. The second week, we looked at a famous author, Anne Rice, who's written a lot of uh, books, uh, especially uh, books about vampires and stuff. And then lately, the last 10 years, more books about Christianity. She came to faith in Christ about 10 years ago. But then after being in the church and being around Christians a lot, um, she said, I quit. I quit being a Christian. Now, she didn't quit following Christ and loving Jesus and trying to serve him as a disciple. But she said, I quit being a Christian. Here's what she said. Christians are a quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious and deservedly infamous group. That's what she called us. And you know what? Even if we don't like that, it feels uncomfortable to us. That's what the world believes. That's what at least 5 billion people on this planet believe. We've got to change that. We've got to change our branding, right? So that's what we've been talking about. Uh, There's a family that came the first week of the series. They've been here ever since. And uh, they told me after the, I think the second or third message, they said, you know what? Uh, That's the way we've always believed, uh, believed about Christians, that they're this hostile, quarrelsome, disputatious group. And, And we've always believed that. And you know what? They said, Pastor Dwayne, not only have we believed it, but everyone we know believes it. Everyone we know believes it. Everyone we know believes that, we're, that believes that we're homophobic and we're quarrelsome and all of that. So we need to fix that. We need to change that. And that's what we've been trying to do through this sermon. So from the beginning, uh, part of our branding problem is terminology, as you know, Christian versus disciple. And we want to be called disciples. And we want to be those who follow Jesus. And we want to be those who will transform the world like they did the first 300 years after Jesus left the earth. For 300 years, there was no branding problem. There were these followers of Jesus, people of the way, these disciples. And they transformed the world. Now, how did they transform the world? Did they pull out swords like Peter? Nope, didn't have swords. In fact, these Christians in the first 300 years, they had no leverage. They had no political clout. They had no weapons. They had no strength. They had no buildings. They had no Bible. They had no iPad. They had nothing. They had nothing except love. They had no other leverage except love. And then around year 300... Uh, we talked about that a few weeks ago with Constantine and all that. All of a sudden now the church got power. They connected to the government, and anytime you put the church and the government together, it's a mess, and they connect and and now they had power over, and they said, Be a Christian, or I'll cut your head off. Or instead of the first three hundred years, power under. No leverage whatsoever. So we want to change that brand. So we open the pages of the gospel. Jesus says, now, what I want you to do to transform the world is something that probably will sound kind of weird. And this is what he said. He said, by this one thing, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. By this one thing. He said, I'm summing all the commandments up into this one thing. So when somebody says uh, about you, well, you know what? I, I think that person's a disciple of Jesus. Because they have really awesome doctrine. Well, they don't care about your doctrine, right? Or I, I think that person is a, a follower of Christ because they must be because they give money to the church. Or because they attend church a lot or because they've been baptized or, or uh, they, 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 they have sound doctrine or good theology. No, Jesus said people look at you and they decide whether you're a disciple based on one thing. How do you love the people around you? And how do you love the person that's far from God? How do you love them? That's how they see you. That's how they wonder. That's how they figure out whether or not you are a follower of Jesus. Now, the elders and teachers, and we talked about this. They always tried to trick up Jesus and, you know, kind of mess him up and make him stumble. And they said, what is the greatest, most important law? Now, they asked this because uh, in the Old Testament, there are over 613 laws. Okay. Now, we always talk about the big 10, you know, the top 10, and, and we, cause those are cool, and Exodus 20, and we like them, and we put them on tablets and stuff, and, and we, but we can't even keep those 10. How on earth are we supposed to keep 613? So, the, the, the Pharisees said to Jesus, okay, of the 613 laws, especially the, the top 10, which is the greatest and most important law of all of them? And they sat back and said, okay, now answer that question, and we'll trap you with that. Here's what Jesus said. Mark chapter 12, verses 30-31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And then, I don't think he said it, but I think he thought it. Now, Pharisees, is this in any way to you ambiguous? (laughs) Do you understand what I'm trying to say? The 613 laws. And, you know, by the way, the, the, the Pharisees took the 613 laws and then they made tens of thousands other laws. Right. So that they wouldn't break the original 16, 613 laws. You know, so you always make these new laws so that you won't be, you know, stumble into breaking another law. And that's when they say that all these thousands of laws. And she said, I want you to understand something. I'll make it so clear. Even you, Pharisee, can understand it. You love God with all your heart and you love people around you as you love yourself. And uh, you will have fulfilled the law. Now, that was transforma- transformational. And somehow, somehow for the last seventeen hundred years, we've forgotten that. And we try to beat people over the head with our Bibles and we try to shame them and we try to point our fingers and say, you're not acting right now. And Jesus said, no, the way we transform the world, we don't have any leverage in that way. The way we transform the world is by loving them in the way that I loved you. Jesus said, now, I, you know, you asked me for one commandment. I just gave you I gave you two because you can't separate the two. If you love God that way, you're going to love people that way. It's just the way it works now. That was, that was Jesus. So we say, okay, we signed off on Jesus. But later, you know, it changed. Paul and John and Peter and all the guys, you know, they, they changed the message. No, they didn't. The message is the same always. 25 years after Jesus said that, here's what Paul said in Romans 13. 25 years after. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be. 613, 10,613 are all summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbors as yourself. Man, Jesus said, do you guys feel me? Do you understand me? Do you know what I'm trying to say? All the teachings that you grew up with, and I'm talking about Hope Covenant Church now, all of the commandments and teachings that you and I grew up with, hang on these two laws. Everything else is subservient. To these two laws. So many times we take the command, we hit it over the head, instead of finding out the heart of the commander. We talked about that last week. The heart of the commander is always more important than the command. That's why he said, I'm gonna make it easy for you. You love God with all your heart. You love people. And you are going to be like me. Every teaching, every sermon, every comment. Well, what about sex? Or what about marriage? What about race? What about war? Every time we talk about any of things, we are to see them through the filter, to the, through the mesh, through the screen of loving God and loving people. Every single command. Let's stop using the commands as weapons And start using them, finding out the heart of the commander to love other people. Last week, last week, we said something that I felt was very important for us to believe and to hear. And it's this church. Don't you dare use my law, Jesus would say, to unlove someone or to hurt someone. Don't you dare take the Bible or a verse of Scripture and hit somebody over there. Don't you dare use God's love to unlove somebody, to hurt somebody, or to them somebody. You know what I mean by theming somebody? Well, those people, you know, and then and, 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 and those people over there, Those, you know, that kid on the street, you know, with his pants down below his rear end. You know, those people, you know, those tattooed people, those People, those Arabs, those don't those people, don't you dare use God's law to unlove someone that Jesus has died for? All law and prophets hang are hinged on these two laws love God, love your neighbors. And Jesus would say this no excuses, church, no excuses. You know, because sometimes we'll say, yeah, yeah, but, but I'm going to still smack you if you do something wrong. You know, we still want to do that. So last week, we uh, uh, brought us to this big idea expressed in one question, and that one question and we 're going to talk about this more today is what does love require of me? What does love require of me? Um, Every doctrinal stand you have, every theological position, every biblical idea, all good, all wonderful. What I want you to do and what Jesus would say to you is all of those things are good, but I want you to step back from all of those things. And first, before you even get to any of those things, ask this one question. What does love require of me? Before I get to my theology, before I get to my doctrine, before I get to my verse, stand back and say, what does love require of me? Now, in that context, I want to do a sidebar. This is not my notes, but God's put this on my heart to share with you. Um, Five weeks from now, we're going to have an election. And my hope as your pastor and as your friend is that every one of you will go to the polls and vote. And vote with your conscience, vote as a disciple of Jesus Christ. But along with that, uh, every four years, and this has happened now, it happened in 2000 when I first came 2004, 2008, and now 2012. Every four years, I have quite a few people from our church uh, come up to me and say, Dwayne, why don't you teach about politics? And, um, I, you know, I've, I've got a couple of standard answers, uh, but, uh, today I want to give you more than an answer. I want to give you kind of my heart in this. So, first of all, politics, whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent, uh, you are disciple first and foremost. That matters more than anything else. The world will not be transformed by politics. It only is transformed by Jesus Christ. It will not be transformed by politics. That because politics is always power over. We're looking for power under. So number one, I want you to understand that. So let, let's um, let's gather around. Let's let's make this like a family meeting around the dinner table. If you're new today, you can take out your iPad and play with it or whatever. Uh, but just for a few minutes, I want to talk to the family. Okay, family. I'll be Papa. Okay, here's Dad. So uh, let me tell you something about politics. It, it, it matters, of course. But let me talk about some of the issues. Number one is this: the most important question you can ask, whenever you're going to discuss politics or even think about politics, is this: What does love require of me? What does love require of me? If I'm talking to a brother or sister in Christ about politics, the first thing before I get to my stand, right? The first thing I do, I stand back, say, "Okay, now in this conversation, because I may really disagree with my brother or sister in Christ, what does love require of me?" The second question is this: What, um, what is it in my life that I really want to communicate. When you talk about politics, you're talking about something that's deep inside of you. And what I want us to know as a family is this if some non believer were listening in on your conversation with another person and you're talking about politics, would they be drawn towards Christ or would they be repelled from Christ? And the way that you are talking to your friends at church, and I've overheard several conversations in our church, I always do, uh, about politics, and sometimes it gets pretty passionate and kind of heated. And uh, uh, what is it in your conversation that would either draw someone to Jesus or to repel them? And the third thing is this, and this is really important. Would you please and I'll say this as your pastor and as your friend, and I'm going to do this myself, would you please reserve your greatest passion for Jesus? Please. Politics, I know they matter to us. I know they do. But would you please reserve your greatest and most intense passion for Jesus? Because politics will not change the world, but Jesus Well, now that's just our little family meeting. Everybody turn off your iPads and your iPhones now, and we'll get back to our sermon. What does love require of me? So, next time you're having a political conversation, always ask that question What does love require of me? Now, in the first century, this big idea was this the disciples will be known by how they treat each other and how they treat other people. That's how they will be known. That's the big idea of the New Testament. The big idea. The big idea is that every law, every commandment, every precept, every verse is seen through the filter of love, uh, loving God and loving each other. The, the verses and precepts don't come first. Love comes first. That's what we've been taught. Jesus said it. Paul said it. John said it. Peter said it. They all said it. This is primary. This is first. We get So often we get our stuff first instead of this first. What does love require of me? Can we make this our default position with your wife, your husband, your kids, your parents, your boss, your classmates, your friends? Can this be our default position instead of our default position being judging and boy, look at the way what they did and those people and all of it. Can we make this our default position? The first thing we think, the first thing that comes to our mind is what would love require of me in this circumstance, in this relationship? Friends, this is a game changer because I grew up like many of you where I was focused always on the commands rather than the heart of the commander. My inclination to this day is still to pick up the Bible and ought you and should you and look and say, well, look at what the Bible says to you. I, I still have that inclination to do that. But before I get to any of those things and those things may be appropriate before I get to any of those things, I want to ask what Jesus would ask. What does love require of me. That's my primary, my first response. When I see a group of teenage boys on their skateboards and, and, and they have long hair and tattoos and earrings and their pants below their rear and all that. My first response is not going to be, look at those kids. What's going to happen to this next generation? How are we, you know, no, come on, stop being an old man. You know, what does love require of me? Those kids. Those kids are going to be around a long time, a lot longer than me. What does love require of me? Is, is there some way I can be in a relationship with maybe one of those kids at church? or uh, we, have, we have those kids in our own youth group. God bless them, and they're wonderful kids. What does love require of me? What's my first, my primary response? See, if you're a Jesus follower, not just a Christian, but if you're a Jesus follower, are you willing to step into this realm of what love requires? You have to ask yourself that question. I can preach so blue in the face, but you've got to ask yourself the question, am I willing to step into this realm? Because it's a lot easier to have rules. A lot easier to have regulations. A lot easier to have verses. A lot easier to have theology. You know, just the little boxes all the time. And if you don't believe this, then you're out. You're bad. You know, I, I don't want anything to do with you. You have different a sexual orientation, you have different colored skin. You, I just want nothing to do with, if you have that box, if that's what you're comfortable with, well, I, that's, that's what you're comfortable with. But are you willing to step out of that box and step into this realm of what love requires? Now, now, for the next few minutes, I want to show you how extraordinarily brilliant Jesus is. Now, you already know that, but I just want to tell you, because I love to say extraordinarily, <laughs> how extraordinarily brilliant Jesus is. Um, his teaching on this is amazing because the early disciples, remember I said this earlier today, the early disciples had no influence. They had no leverage. They're from the armpit of the Roman Empire. They were a group of misfits. You know, they were not the socially elite. They were the middle to lower class of society. Fishermen, tax collectors, all the bad people. Yet this teaching that Jesus gave about loving God and loving each other. This teaching transformed the world through these people that had no leverage. Now, let me illustrate it by saying this, and I'll make this a very personal example for personal for me and also personal for you. It's like this. Think about let me say it this way. There's two categories of people that have made you who you are, that have influenced you profoundly Two categories of people, whether you're a father, a wife, a student, an employee, a friend. There are two categories of people that have made you who you are, and those two categories are this: people that have hurt you, and people that have loved you. Those that hurt you deeply, and those who have loved you profoundly. If you talk to, uh, I've done a lot of counseling, and if you talk some, many of the soul, and you talk about, you you recognize that people that are hurt at a very deep level in their soul. It's kind of a lifetime battle. Man, it, just, it, just, it just is. When somebody has hurt you profoundly, there's, there's no amount of good theology that can really kind of fix that. I mean, you just, you just have to deal with that, and you have to let the grace of Jesus kind of flow in you. But when you have hurt someone profoundly, uh, it um, changes everything. And when someone has loved you well, it changes everything as well. Uh, in the first church that I served in San Diego, uh, we had a neighbor, and uh, her name was Carolyn, and she had a little boy named Christopher, wasn't he? Christopher. Christopher was our Tyler's best friend. It was something like they were four or five years old. They'd play all the time. Eventually, uh, Sherry and I convinced uh, uh, Carolyn was a single mom, convinced Carolyn that she, uh, you know, she'd come to church. It was a safe place. She said, I, I, "I've never seen church as a safe place." Well, I, I thought that was kind of weird. Back this was back in the late '70s. But okay, And so but she came and she started getting involved and kind of letting her guard down. And then then uh, she asked for a a meeting with me. And so we had a a session and she told me her story. Her father was the head of one of the most famous missionary organizations in the world. And that I won't mention the name because it's still uh, one of the most famous missionary organizations in the world. And uh, her father was one of the top guys in that organization. Her father had impeccable theology. Her father had perfect doctrine. Her father had a very disciplined spiritual life. But her father sexually abused her and her sister for 17 years. Why do you think this kid was afraid of church? Why do you think this young woman didn't know if she could find safety in church? And so we brought her into our lives, into the church. And I actually did an intervention with she and her father and the police. Eventually he went off to prison. But here's here's the bottom line to this. When somebody hurts you deeply, it changes everything in your life. It even changes your theology. And when somebody, and the opposite of that is true as well. When somebody loves you profoundly, when they love you well, it changes everything. You think, those of you who are relatively balanced, you know, that not many of us are, but those of you that are kind of basically healthy and you, you like that and you've had maybe good parents, good upbringing and all of that. And, and you can think back in your life and you think of, of parents or coaches or teachers or mentors who loved you well. And I'll bet you I'll bet you can't remember any of their theology. But I'll bet you remember that they loved you. And people that hurt you, especially those that hurt you in the name of Jesus I bet you don't remember any of their theology. But you remember how much they hurt you. Because you felt something. Something spoken deep into your soul. And so you live your life today by the doses of those two things. The way you have been treated has more to do with who you are than what you believe. And I'm a big believe guy. I am. But the way you have been treated has more to do with the way that you turn out than what you believe. This is why Jesus' words are so extraordinarily profound. It's extra important that we get this. This is our best play. This is our greatest leverage. This is our best opportunity. And it's this love profoundly. Love profoundly. Your enemies, your friends, Your family, the people you're sitting in church with, the people that are outside driving down to Intel, the people that are at restaurants now and could care less about God, love them profoundly. You do that. What happened when that was happening in the church? It happened for the first 300 years of the church. And the world was transformed. The Roman Empire, worshiping Saturn, it was gone. (laughs) People are now worshiping. There's crosses all over Rome. Everything changed. If we would simply do what Jesus said, instead of arguing about what he said, the world would change. Church has spent 1,700 years arguing about what he said when he made it very clear how we were supposed to live. Love God, love people with your whole heart. See, the reputation of Christ followers would change. There would be a brand new branding in the world about those of us who. Our disciples. And my question for you, Hope Covenant Church, as we wrap up this series are you up for it? I, I'll let me be honest with you. I think I am. I mean, I, I've had my head stuck in this Bible and in this work for about two months. Are you up for it? Are you up for a new paradigm? A new way of doing life? A new way of um, doing Christianity? A new way of being a disciple? Are we ready to do what Jesus says instead of arguing about what he says? See, what we don't see in the Bible is this a new command I give you believe correctly. By all this, uh, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have the correct theology. Don't see that. Do you know how much time and effort and wars? The church is spent in arguing about what Jesus meant instead of living by what Jesus did. For the first 300 years, it was simple. Love one another. What does love require of me? This, to me, is brilliant by Jesus. Every time the Pharisees or even the disciples say, yeah, but let's go back to our doctrine. Let's go back and we've got to make sure that this is right. Jesus said, yeah, of course it's important. Of course we've got to have good doctrine. But you step back from that. And the first question you ask before, what do you believe, is, what does love require of me? In my relationship with you, in my relationship with that teenager that's kind of goof-off, in my relationship to an elderly parent that doesn't know the Lord, in my relationship to my boss, to the students at Hamilton High School, what does love require of me? Jesus always interacted with people. Now, when we do this, we recognize that it kind of changes things. Let me, let me give you an example. Think of somebody right now, get a picture of them in your head, somebody that irritates you. And try to make it not me, because I'm up here, okay? <laughs> somebody that kind of irritates. Just get a picture in your mind of somebody that irritates you. So wars are started over such things. Families are split up over such things, about somebody in your head that irritates you. And what would Jesus have done? How would he have responded to that? Let me tell you how Um, Jesus would say, what does love require of me and what is what is in your heart? Um, We need to know somebody's story before we can make a judgment. You've all heard the story about the father who was uh, traveling on a, a jet plane. Uh, and he had two small children, and the two small children—this is a true story. Two small children were kind of running ragged up and down the aisles, and everybody's getting irritated. Of course, it's irritating when kids are yelling and screaming and running up and down the aisle. And finally, one woman yelled at the father, said, "Would you control your children? They're making everybody miserable." And the father said, "Oh, ma'am, I'm so sorry. I'm so—we're just traveling back from uh, their mother just passed away, and, and there's a funeral, and we're just—and I just have nothing left." and what, what, do you think that woman's perception changed of the situation? Do you think she was still angry at the father and the kids? See, everything changes when you know someone's story. That's the beauty, the brilliance of what Jesus did. Jesus knew the story. He found out the story. He had a, he had a head start on us, right? He kind of knew anyway. But we've got to find out. We've got to do it the hard way. We've got to ask. Jesus knew the story. So why was it possible that... Two rich men came, two rich young men, rich young rulers came to Jesus. We have two different accounts. One of them, Jesus said, I want you to go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. The other rich young man came to Jesus and Jesus said, here's what I want you. He said, he said, you're close. You're close to the kingdom. You didn't have to sell anything. He didn't have to have a garage sale. He didn't have to get rid of his phylacteries or his gold bullion. The guy didn't have to do any of that. Why was Jesus different with those two different? Because he knew their hearts and he knew their story. And one of them said, you're close to the kingdom. Why shouldn't we do the same? Why shouldn't we, before we make a judgment on somebody, why shouldn't we know their heart? Why shouldn't we know their story? Sometimes, and I'm going to confess it, sometimes I sin by trying to hurry my wife up. Okay? Okay. It happened last night at the wedding reception. Come on, let's go. You know, we've got to get home, you know. And she's in there talking to people. And, you know, but you know what she's doing? She, she's, she's learning your stories because she cares. When you know somebody's story, you're no longer irritated with them. Now you pray with them. And now you, you stand with them. And now you sit with them. And now you walk with them. When you know somebody's stories, you're no longer irritated at that teenage kid that has all the tattoos and the earrings and you know you find out this kid's never had a father, doesn't have any man in his life that could care less about him and it kind of changes the way you think about him, right? That's what Jesus did. That's why Jesus was so brilliant, and that's what he calls us to do. Before you make a judgment, you find out the story. And then you can love as Jesus loves. What does love require of me? I want to wrap this up real quickly. And I want to say just three statements that kind of clarifies this truth about what does love require of me, of learning someone's story. It's so this number one. Don't do anything that will hurt you. Number two, don't do anything that will hurt someone else. And number three, don't be mastered by anything. Let me explain. Don't do anything that would hurt you. Why? Because you can't do anything that hurts you that doesn't also hurt Jesus. That's how much he loves you. You say, well, that's not true. I just kind of, if I hurt myself, you know, I don't bother. No, no, no. If you're a parent, and many of you are parents, if your kid hurts themselves anyway, you pick out out a way, if your kid hurts yourself, do you feel that? (laughs) You feel that so deeply? If your kid's on drugs, if your kid chooses to, to, to drink alcohol before they're of age, if your kid chooses to have sex outside of marriage and get someone pregnant or an STD, if your kid, do you feel that? Of course you do. Because when you hurt yourself, you hurt Jesus. I mean, every moral, ethical, sexual, professional, relational decision that hurts you, it hurts Jesus. And what love requires is to ask that question. Before I hurt myself, I need to watch that. When you hurt you, you hurt the one and the ones that you love the most. Because, we've talked about this, sin always has a gotcha. You know, we don't dismiss sin at our church. We just tell people, warn people, listen, sin's got a gotcha. I'm not going to tell you that you're going to go to hell if you do something. I'm not going to do that. But sin's got a gotcha. Okay, so don't do anything that will hurt you. Secondly, don't do anything that will hurt someone else. I will not do or say anything that will hurt someone For whom Jesus died. And you look at any one human being. Eyeball to eyeball. And if you make a judgment on them. Or you curse them. Or you do something that will hurt them. Before you know their story. Well. You have to answer to God. Don't do anything. That will hurt someone else. And thirdly. Don't be mastered by anything. Why? Because whenever you are mastered by something. It keeps you from loving something. No one should have to compete with my gambling. It wasn't fair that Sherry had to compete with my gambling or that my church had to compete with my gambling, my friends, my kids. It's not fair. No one should have to compete with your alcohol. No one should have to compete with your pornography. No one, especially your wife. Come on. No one should have to compete with your prescription drugs, with your anger. No one. Refuse to be mastered because God alone is your master. By the song we sing, he's jealous for you. He wants you alone and he wants you holy. He is jealous for you. Don't, let, don't do anything that would hurt you. Don't do anything that would hurt someone else. And don't be mastered by anything. Now, some of you that are here this morning are saying, Wow, Pastor, I'm really glad you preached that sermon because my husband really needs to hear I'm going to go and ask my teenage son to listen online because he really, you know, look, can we not do that? Can we kind of leave them to the Lord? You know, can we kind of, you know, just leave them to God and, and, and let's focus on me and let's focus on what God wants for me this morning. Here's what Jesus was getting at. When the church leverages anything other than love, the church loses. When the church leverages anything other than love, the church loses. And when the church loses, Christ loses. We have lost it in our culture. Our culture does not respect us. They do not believe us. They believe that we are argumentative, disputatious, homophobic, they do not believe us because we have not given them any reason to believe. What does love require of you? What does love require of me? I'm tired of focusing always on the commandments. Those are easy. I can put those in a box. What about the intent of the commander? To love God and to love each other. If you do that, you will transform the world. I want the world to peer in, to peek into Hope Covenant Church. Maybe it's your work or here at, on this property or at your school. I want people to peer in at you and say, Man, what's different about that person? Man, I, I see the way that they love other people. They're not condemning, they're not judging. I see the way they love. I see the way they love they, their wife, their husband. I see the way that student lives a pure life because she she wants to have something great when she gets married. I I, I see uh, this person at my job who has integrity and honesty. I see all these people are so generous with their money they give to the church. I just see that. And, man, I don't know if I want to be one of those Christian people, but, man, I'm drawn towards that. I'm intrigued by that. And that's what God wants from us. When you love like Jesus loves, people will be drawn to you. You won't be able to get away from a party because everybody want to talk to you, you. know. Ask the question. What does love require of me? Could you close your eyes and bend your heads, please? Lord. Um, we come to the end of this uh, series. And there's kind of a, a, a real kind of an excitement inside my soul. Uh, to see how that our church is going to respond to this word that you have given us. Lord, this isn't just some text taken out of an obscure part of the Bible and then using that. This is what you said like a thousand times. And it's what John said. And it's what Paul said. And it's what Peter said. Every one of them said the same thing, that we're to love you and to love each other and to love the world. And everything else takes set back seat to that all of our doctrine and theology and good works and all the things that we have kind of stacked up to help you somehow like us, all of that takes a backseat to simply loving. And Father, that's my desire for my life and for my wife and for my children, and my grandchildren. Mostly that's my, my profound desire for this church. God, that we would ask the question before anything else, What does love require of me? Father, that's my prayer. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.